This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Dan Yeaman, and today is August 20th, 2013. We're recording this interview at my house in lovely Roxborough, Philadelphia, and uh, this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Dan. Hey, how are you? Thank you for coming out. Uh, I know that I was extremely annoying and trying to compel you to come out here. It's all right. I know you don't leave your house much. I never leave my house. I'm always here. Uh, so, we'll begin as, as we customarily do with, with Baby Dan. Um, where were you born and when? Uh, June 17th, 1968 in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, how long did you live in Manhattan? Not very long. We lived in Yonkers and probably Brooklyn for a little while and outside of Chicago for a little while, upstate New York for a little while, and then landed in northern New Jersey by the time I was eight. Okay. What is all of this moving about? Um, my parents work. Mm-hmm. What kind of work did they do? Dad was did a, my father has a doctorate in chemical engineering and was doing that at a time when uh, nuclear power kind of started to be a business and a uh, and a national interest, and so he, um, there were no nuclear engineers because there was no such thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he. So this is post world, just just post World War Two. Oh no, this is like he finished his degree in the sixties. Okay. Um, but there were no real. You know, there were people that, there were structural engineers that I think built the plants, and there were scientists, you know, nuclear scientists, but they needed engineers that. Um, that had specific skill sets to deal with aspects of nuclear power. Um, and, you know, he uh, had had some experience. Uh, he always said that, like, he got stuck in the middle of grad school and ended up taking twice as long as he should have to finish his doctorate. And, you know, he just got, like, I think probably depressed mm-hmm. um, uh, when all, you know, when the... The, um, the period of time when a lot of pretty special people were getting assassinated uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I think he got pretty depressed and then he ended up having to like you know his, his funding didn't carry him through the whole thing so he ended up having to work in this gamma processing lab and turned out the skill set from that job which he only had because he got depressed and didn't finish his degree on time mm-hmm. ended up making him the perfect candidate for these kind of fledgling nuclear engineer jobs mm-hmm. that were coming into being uh, in the 60s. And so he was doing that. Was there at all, do you think there was a, a progressive spirit involved in the early development of nuclear power for... Absolutely. For, absolutely. I mean, I think the scientists at least, you know, there's a lot of like panic about it, but the scientists involved really believed it was much better for humanity and the environment than than um than the current you know way that the current means of getting electricity right uh and i think most scientists still believe that mm-hmm. i'm i you know i'm not i'm not convinced that nuclear power is a worse option than than uh the ways we've traditionally gotten most of our power right is your father still involved in the field he's retired okay He's 80 now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we moved a bunch and then settled 
we went to work for a company in New York, and then we ended up, and then we were living in Yonkers, and then he ended up, same company, but work, it was an engineering contracting company, or, or a consulting company, and they ended up on this job that was um, federally funded, and it was happening at Princeton University, and it was like a fusion test reactor, and he was, their company was working with Grumman and some other you know, aerospace companies to build, design and build this thing, and he was working on that, so we moved, he got sick of commuting to Princeton from Yonkers, and we moved to Westfield. Mm -hmm. So what was Westfield like uh, when you were growing up there? Um, it was a really conservative, uh, like the ideal Reagan era suburb. Mm -hmm, right. Um, it had, uh, definitely had like a, a right and wrong side of the tracks. Although I want to be really clear that, that the entire town is upper middle class. Okay. Right. Um, but there is like a, an old money, like traditionally pretty waspy side of town. And there was like a newer New, more newly developed side of town, literally on the other side of the tracks. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely, um, also by the time we lived there, had a pretty large Jewish population, but I knew I'd heard stories, that we, I was raised Jewish, I'd heard stories that um, we lived on the south side, which is the newer side of town, and I'd heard stories that just a few years before we moved there, um, people we knew wouldn't, uh, couldn't get shown houses in certain parts of town, like in the mid, you know, as recently as the mid seventies. Mm -hmm. Like, or you couldn't see a house near the tennis club or the country club. And this was the Jews that weren't yeah, allowed Jews, to. Yeah, the yeah. Jew, Jews weren't allowed to look at houses. But they didn't have to wear a little yellow star or something no, on their no, polo shirt. Not on their polo. <laughs> yeah. No, so. So it was a pretty conservative town. It's a terrible place to live during the Reagan years, which is when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh. So how then, well, tell me a little bit about young Dan growing up and what were your, your interests and, uh, you know, what kind of brought you ultimately into your interest in punk? Um, probably science fiction. Uh, who are your guys? Um, you know, Asimov, Roger Zelazny. Oh, uh, yeah. You're uh, the Amber books? Yeah. yeah. Robert Heinlein. Um, and then a lot of, you know, I didn't, I, I um, obsessively read all of their stuff and then, um, Asimov had like a digest or that was a science, monthly science fiction digest mm -hmm. of short stories and I would read that and then, just, you know, kind of like the way you discover uh, new bands by listening to college radio. I'd be like, oh, I like this story, so let's see what else that person wrote. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I went through a very similar process, right. so it's nice to hear that. And, and um, so much of, you know... So much of science fiction, the science fiction I read was kind of utopian, mm -hmm. and um, it was before like dystopian uh, literature fiction came into vogue. And I mean, it's not like it was all utopian, but I, I think that the the thread, the the thread that led me to punk is like science fiction. There's a sense of possibility that things could be different, mm -hmm. that things that that are terrible now could be different. Right. But also the smartest stuff also was, um, you know, critiquing the most fucked up aspects of human, you know, modern society yeah. and, and in capitalist culture and, you know, sort of depicting futures that were hyperbolic, uh, 
kind of extensions of the worst tendencies of, of the present of the yeah. present yeah yeah um which i always i think i even understood then that that critique was important and fit with my the way i saw the world mm-hmm. so then, even when i was 10 yeah. mm-hmm. and so this eventually dovetailed into an interest in uh, music uh, yeah, i always had an interest in music I don't know where that... I mean, there was always music in my house, but it was only classical. That was the only thing my parents listened to. Okay. Or, which I never got into. Right. Even well, to today? Yeah. I mean, I'll put it on for peaceful times. Bad. but um, not, to, not to listen actively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were surrounded by music, and it was like important to my family. Music and books. Mm-hmm. We were sort of, everything, every room had music and books. Yeah, and, that's nice. Because it'd yeah. certainly be a sort of an intellectually nurturing environment, yeah. which certainly some people, you know, never have access to. Absolutely. Even my grandfather, who I think had to leave school at fourteen, he was an immigrant, and had he's he'd been working since he was fourteen. He had like four times this many books in his Brooklyn apartment, and had read more than you know most people in my nuclear family have graduate degrees, and he'd read more than all of us. He was a total auto autodidact, mm-hmm. and that was always a part of the. F- culture of our family yeah that's that's a great set of dna then to yeah. inherit because it certainly is fostering you exploring uh-huh. you know, your brain in different directions he also lived to 105 and remained Jesus. physically active and independent until he was like 100 wow that is impressive like cruising around coney island he's <laughs> an interesting dude i'd like to interview him yeah from the grave he's a pretty interesting guy so was there a music that you were drawn to prior to punk that that eventually dovetailed into? The first, yeah, hard rock. I mean, the first record I bought with my own money was the first Kiss album, uh-huh. um, which I think also predisposed me towards punk, only because there was a mythology around it that I found found really captivating. Like they were in makeup and costume, and you didn't know what they looked like i guess this had, would have been prior to their kind yeah. of unveiling oh yeah this is yeah, yeah, yeah this is 1977 yeah, you know? yeah and so like and they had you know they used their names but they had like this each character had a mythology to it and and there was a lot of mystery and obfuscation and it's the same reason i loved wu-tang clan immediately mm-hmm. um and uh and something about that sense of mystery made you uh, made me at least it's like it's like you find a cave in your backyard you're like you know you're gonna spend every fucking day exploring that cave oh right? yeah yeah and, and the cave uh, just keeps on yeah going. it keeps going and yeah. so like i went down that rabbit hole and you know i wanted to know everything so it, it engages you in a different way not just the music but this the sense of mystery you want mm-hmm. to know about the people and the mythology and um I imagine it takes a fair bit of work on your part at the time because in a pre-internet yeah. age, you really kind of have to really seek and find. Oh yeah, especially as a kid, you've got to like go into like pharmacies and magazine, comic book shops, and look for magazines and and you know just go to record stores, ask questions. Dumb little kid bothering the guy behind the counter at the music staff. Yeah. But they all know that this little yeah. seed is planted. Oh, in sure. Here, so. I mean, they're, they're at that point, you know, they're happy to... People that worked in record stores in the 70s were happy to talk to you about music all day. Yeah. Same as now, actually. That's That hasn't changed at all. Yeah, yeah, that is certainly a constant. Um, so, and then from that, I, you know, there was... I got into 
I, I don't know if I can remember it all in an entire linear, entirely linear fashion, but um, I definitely got into hard rock. And the next thing I kind of remember being really into was Rush. Mm-hmm. And but for a while, it was any record any kid in my neighborhood brought home of any, including disco, we're just like sit around the record and stare at it and listen to it over and over again. Yeah, and I'm like, wow what's happening here yeah yeah it's such an immersive yeah. experience to, uh-huh. to take in all the elements the packaging the, mm-hmm. the music the and i remember one time i had such limited there was no pop culture in my house because my parents are nerds <laughs> and like scientists and they didn't and my mom had a has a master's degree in child psychology and 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 they only listened to classical music they only we had a black and white tv pre-cable until i was there was no cable until i was in middle school it didn't exist but mm-hmm. um I mean, the only I've never I I've only seen my parents watch PBS, <laughs> right. you know, like to this day, um, and so there was no sense of like there's nothing with the New York Times in my house, mm-hmm. right? And PBS. So uh, I remember one time for, I had an Aerosmith record. I liked Aerosmith, and um, and I remember looking finding this thing in the Times that once a week they publish like the top ten. I don't know whose top ten it was. I don't think it was Billboard. It was like the top ten records or whatever. And mm-hmm. I remember like writing down the bands on that and adding to the list of bands I knew, yeah. and then asking one of my babysitters if I had gotten all of them. All the bands. Yeah, all, all the of bands. the bands. Yeah. And she just was like, "No, there's there's a lot more going on." I was like, "What? <laughs> what?" Um. So yeah, and then it was Rush and and. Uh, and you know a combination of like stuff that I just got into and the stuff that was on the radio that was cool I thought the Cars first few records were awesome mm-hmm. the first band I was in in middle school covered like stuff we liked and anything that was easy to play so like certain Rolling Stone songs certain Rush songs which were not easy no, I'm sure. uh, certain Cars songs um, so you were playing guitar then? Yeah. Yeah. When did you start doing that? Thirteen. Okay. Yeah. You're taking lessons. No, first I well pretty quickly I found my mom's old guitar. My mom like learned like folk songs at some point when I was like really young, and she used to bring uh, the guitar camping, and she'd actually like sing around the campfire, like yeah. ridiculous. Um, and I remember this one memory of her coming home crying because she'd been walking home from a guitar lesson and she tripped and fell and her guitar broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's the neck snapped. And my dad, yeah. the engineer, just like got a bunch of wood glue and all this all these clamps and built this apparatus to <laughs> right. hold it He didn't together. make it into a loop, did he? No, no, he just fixed it. Right. And then like my mom abandoned it eventually and then like when I was in junior high I found it in a closet and I like just picked it up. I didn't know how to tune it but just on the one string I just started like figuring out like who song, like songs by the Who. I love the Who. Mm-hmm. Or like yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, and I started figuring out like, oh, I was like, oh, that's just can't explain. Ah, yeah, that's cool. And my parents are like, oh, he has like an ear, and so they they're really supportive of whatever you know. Like so, they're just like, well, guitar lessons. You want guitar lessons? And then I had guitar lessons. I studied with a classical guitarist, who was cool. She was like. Make, do a combination of making me learn a theory and practice rudiments and then um, if I was interested in learning a song she would l- learn it she'd figure it out but then she'd do it in musical notation I'd have to learn it by reading oh so you could read then 
Yeah, then I could, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, you can't read anymore? No. Yeah. I guess it doesn't make much of a difference at this point. Punk ruined a lot of my, a lot of disciplines for me. Very sorry to hear that. Uh, but, but the fact that she taught me theory ended up being really important later on. Um, I was also into, really into uh, the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first police album was really punk. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Try listening to it again at some point. It's yeah, I kind of like, really... attempted to push all forms of the police out oh, of my life. Sorry or... about that. Yeah, they're a pretty inventive band, um, and then and then you know, like in like eighth grade maybe I got in, got exposed to the Clash. So was that? Did you consciously know that this was this was punk? Like this was something that was its own little scene, or actually, you know, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it was a scene. I right. just knew it was music that was different. Right. And... So you knew there was music apart from say. The other record. I knew it was cooler than what we were doing because this other band in middle school, uh, you know, and there's like think battle of the bands and or showcase things that they would do in the gymnasium a few times a year, and they'd have bands set up like all over. And uh, this other band of kids I knew, who like had older brothers. Mm-hmm. I'm the older bro- oldest brother. They had older brothers, and they were like doing Clash songs, and I was like, holy shit, this is like really immeasurably cooler than what we're doing yeah yeah did you do you remember what clash record it was was that that you had discovered and was it the, the first, fir- oh, the um, first. The, i think I, I got exposed to london calling and the first lp simultaneously mm-hmm. so it would have been when london calling was out or maybe just when sandinista came out okay yeah. Sandinista is what like 82 Maybe? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Something yeah, like that. yeah. That sounds about right. Um, yeah, because I remember that song, Police on My Back. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, Train in Vain was on the radio. It was like an actual single. Yeah, it's hard to imagine yeah. today, but yeah, yeah. Um, so, somewhere in between those two records. But then, but I, I just had a friend who had a, another friend who I don't think was in any of these bands, but had an older brother, a couple older brothers, and he, we borrowed the guitar from, like, the the junior high, like, band room had a couple of electric guitars you could sign out. Mm-hmm. And he had this Hagstrom guitar with, like, 40 switches on it. It's like an old cheap surf guitar. And, um, and he taught me, he knew, like, Clamp Down and Death or Glory, and he taught them to me. And then, I think at the same time, uh, Clash City Rockers. Yeah, yeah. So do you begin to become aware of other punk bands at this time? Or, or look for them? Yeah, I think the jam. We got exposed to the jam pretty quickly. And um, and because of the jam, then there's this weird overlap where like because of the jam and rush, I bought I I, I bought a bass. Mm-hmm. Cause I got pretty infatuated with what both Getty Lee and Bruce Foxton were doing. Right on the, ba- with yeah. the bass. Yeah. Um, Did you take lessons on the bass no, as well? Okay. No, I just if you you know if you play guitar, I if you play guitar, you could yeah. play the bass. You just had to practice because it took more strength. Yeah. And deeper calluses. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so. There was that, right. uh, and then uh, and then uh, pretty soon after, 
It's hard to remember the timeline at this point, but you know, if I could sit in front of my record collection, I could tell you what, yeah, like, yeah. sort of how it came. I think it ended up with like uh, that Susie singles collection, Once Upon a Time, and uh, at some point found College Radio. But there was some time in there when I just really basically had word of mouth to go on. Mm-hmm. But there were two stations that we could get pretty easily. One was the Rucker Station, uh, RSU, and one was uh, Staten Island College, WSIA. And, you know, it was like, at this point, the early 80s, and so, like, anyone with a, everyone with a college radio show was playing punk. Yeah, yeah. Or hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And, um... So I would just come home after school and put a cassette in and record and then go out and play and then come back and like listen to it and then have a notepad. I yeah, wait till the yeah. DJ comes yeah. on and be like, you went through the same thing. I oh, completely yeah. relate to that. Yeah, it and was so, okay to you. Yeah, so Minor Threat, Suicidal, but also like they would, they had a great, like they would play early Elvis Costello and the Attractions right after a live version of Institutionalized mm-hmm. and than like the weirdest song on the Husker Du record. You know, they'd play yeah. uh, that that Diane song about uh, Ed Gain, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. on Metal Circus. And that was the first Husker Du song I heard. It's like a dirge, you know, yeah, and then yeah. I heard the rest, yeah, the rest of the Husker Du like stuff, that. and yeah. I was like, whoa. But I loved, you know, I loved Husker Du. Minor Threat, Husker Du, Suicidal, uh, Buzzcocks, definitely. Um, what Do I Get was, was on there. Generation X, that was life-changing. Yeah, I was in love with Kiss, the song "Kiss Me Deadly," and I finally found the Generation X record, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is the best thing that ever happened to me." <laughs> was it a process trying to find these records then that you were hearing yeah, on this call? Totally. Right? Yeah, I mean, we had a record store in town with a limited punk section, and you just got what was there. Yeah, were the, were the people there at all in tune to that? Because a lot of times record stores would be run by old hippies who didn't necessarily know, you know, what was coming out of England at the time or whatever. I think. I mean. I think by then I wasn't asking questions. I was just looking. Mm-hmm. I was mostly getting my questions answered by kids with older brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, and then just looking for stuff that looked cool. But somehow there was stuff that looked cool that I never got into until later. Like Misfits records were captivating, but I never bought a Misfits record back then. What do you think was the... Like, why didn't you pick those up and they were around? Why didn't I? I don't yeah. know. Something about it probably seemed even then a little hokey mm-hmm. so there's definitely a lot of hokiness there yeah although it's an appealing hokiness it is definitely but yeah. and but i don't know i was less into obvious hooks back then and more, yeah. although the clash is a lot of obvious hooks i don't know why i would like the clash and not the misfit it doesn't make any sense i liked what the clash was singing about like i knew it was political yeah so was there was there a political thread that was sort of entering your life at this time? Yeah, I mean, as I started, I had a pretty good school system. So I had, like, people that, even in, in um, elementary school, that were, like, having us do projects where we read the New York Times and, like, did projects on, like, current events, um, you know, local and international. So, and, you know, the, and then there were... This was, you know, this was in, it was in my household, so, like, I was aware of, like, I remember being really aware of the hostage crisis in Iran, um, and I just remember becoming aware that Reagan was a piece of shit, and, like, everything I, like, kind of 
believed about freedom was like being pissed on. And I was less cynical about the, I didn't understand, I didn't have any cynicism about the entire political process and how limited our choices were. Um, but I knew that those, those, like the Republicans were fucks and they were like just starting to get into bed with the religious right as a mm -hmm. way of kind of like consolidating their base yeah. and like so there was there was the moral majority which was a thing like a um which is an evangelical kind of like or pre-evangelical by today's standards but this guy jerry falwell had spearheaded this organization called the moral majority which was like a pan-christian right-wing morality police or at least that's what they wanted to be yeah yeah um, he had quite were, a dramatic fall uh, when his time came. He did. It was beautiful. He fell well. Uh, did you grow up? I mean, when I was growing up in the early '80s, I was aware of the, sort of the imminent threat of nuclear war. Oh yeah, that yeah. was like I didn't think we'd live to see thirty. Yeah, it always seemed like that little doomsday clock was just like yeah. edging closer to to midnight. Yeah, there was that. Like the Cold War was definitely like scary, mm -hmm. but I it wasn't like I didn't like. I didn't see it in terms of like good guys and bad guys. I saw it in terms of like crazy people who would like fuck us all to save face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or to like avoid looking weak. Like I was aware of like the part of the like the Reagan ideology of peace, peace through strength, yeah, which I right. thought was like even at 15 sounded so dumb to me. Like, There's also the thought of the, the mad, the mutually assured yeah, destruction right. would surely keep us from blowing each other apart. Uh, which I suppose maybe it did. It probably did. And, yeah. But, I'll, but I definitely became aware of, and this might have been because I was curious about what the Clash was singing about, but the shit that was going on, uh, you know, post Vietnam in Central America in the name of fighting communism. Trying to grow El Salvador, yeah. yeah the and where we were sort Indonesia. of like. Interfering, interfering directly in, you know, like populist, democratizing kind of events, mm -hmm. um, usually to uphold, yeah, kind of American-friendly puppet dictators who are going to squelch any kind of socialist Marxist activity that was going on. That's sort of like. The, the, uh, the hypocrisy seems so obvious, you know, like we are a country founded on revolution and here we were like interfering with revolutions mm -hmm. close by. Right. Yeah. Nobody wanted the creeping tendrils to creep ever closer yeah. to, yes. to the U.S. Yeah. Like communism in action was pretty totalitarian and scary, but communism in theory is pretty utopian. Yeah, but, but in action, right. it winds up being right. equally, you know. But I understood the difference. You know, I don't think 16-year-olds are too dumb to understand that, like, these ideas are meant to be liberating. And, like, maybe they'll do a better job in Nicaragua than they did in the Soviet Union. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they wind up in their own version of a gulag. Yeah, who knows? But it's their right to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Mm -hmm. And, uh... So did you begin to identify yourself as punk, you know, around this time? Um, I don't know. I thought of it that way, because I still wasn't really aware of... This is all stuff that was happening somewhere else, you know? Yeah. I certainly wasn't aware of, like... Until I went to my first show, I wasn't aware of, like, a scene that was currently existed 
that currently existed close to close by that I could participate in. Mm. You know, the suburbs were still pretty isolated. Right. I mean, I was allowed to go into the city on the what train you in New York? by myself. Yeah, in New York. Sorry, we lived like like a half an hour train ride from New York. Probably as close to as close as you grew up, as close yeah. as you were to Philly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm talking about the city, and it's a little bit. I'm totally a Philadelphian at this point. It's been yeah, 21 yeah. years, but when I when I'm reminiscing and I talk about the city, it's definitely yeah, New York. Yeah. So the city wasn't like a scary place. I mean, my folks were both born and raised in the Bronx, so like they took us into the city pretty much every weekend when I was little and availed ourselves of all the kind of cultural opportunities. Like I was in the Museum of Natural History probably a hundred times before I finished elementary school. Um, and you know art, you know the the Guggenheim and the MoMA and the Met and all that stuff. Art, a lot of art museums, art exhibits. Um, and then I was, you know, by the time I was fifteen, I was allowed to go in by myself. But I didn't know, you know, New York Times doesn't have ads for shows at SOBs or CBGB. Yeah. You know, like, um, so at least it didn't then. Uh, it wasn't until I found out where I could get the Village Voice that I started being aware of that. But somebody I, took me into a, to New York to see um, a free show in Central Park in 1984, and it was a Rock Against Racism show, and it was Cause for Alarm, Roxanne Chante, and Reagan Youth. Oh, nice. And that was that was it for me. That sealed my fate. So I imagine you're probably seeing the chaotic movement. Of oh, it's like terrifying. And, yeah, there's yeah. like bleeding skinheads like coming <laughs> yeah. out of the pit. But like also, there's all this stuff that I was like pissed off about. And there's the guy, there's a singer of Reagan Youth on stage, like this like crazy looking bearded dude, just like marching around sig heiling. <laughs> but I clearly, I mean, I understood what he was talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. I know he was. He didn't think he was a fashion. No, no, I thought he was ridiculing like Reagan era. American culture, quote unquote, mm-hmm. which I thought you know was pretty awesome, and, um, and so I was kind of sold after that. I was like, oh, this is like happening, you know. And I missed Minor Threat by like a year. Uh-huh. Like if I'd been a little more aware or a little more, a little more of a sense of like, if it certainly had been the internet age, I would have, you know, yeah, I would have been on that shit a couple years earlier. But what can you do? Yeah, I'm sure you can rattle off hundreds of bands who, you know, young people would be crying to hear that you saw that, that they missed. So. Perhaps. So then do you begin in earnest to go to these shows? And were you... Not for another couple of years. Not until I went to college. Okay. So then what year is that? 86. Okay. Uh, so you, did you have friends when, you know, prior to that who were into pop? <coughs> and, yeah. And were you the kind of, you know, physically... Uh, defining yourself, you know, with weird hair or no. clothes or something. Right? No. So you kind of would dress like fairly a, normally. Yeah, pretty standard. Not preppy. I hated preppy kids. No polo shirts. No. My parents would have laughed at me if I asked for that stuff anyway. But. <laughs> right. Uh, so you, you came, went into college and then, then it begins to kind of, you start to immerse yourself in the, the active scene of the time. Yeah. And where were you going to college? University of Michigan okay. in Ann Arbor. So what was going on over there? They were they were much less into. I mean, I met a bunch of kids that were like into punk and had been playing in punk bands already, but um, people's interests seemed to be shifting there 
to stuff was could stuff could still be regional then you mm-hmm. know Not so yeah um people's interest was really uh had moved towards what was happening uh on sub pop which mm-hmm. is already you know functioning label in the in the mid 80s or mid mid late 80s so people were really into like all the punk hardcore kids were really into like either weirder stuff like what the butthole surfers are doing or or um like green river like early mm-hmm. sub pop bands yeah green river mud honey Man, yeah um you know there was still like like uh circle jerks i saw the circle jerks the first weekend i lived in ann arbor yeah that's a good um, welcoming yeah uh and that was amazing did keith morris have the hideous dreadlocks at the time i can't remember it was great though I saw Sonic Youth like a dozen times the first like couple years I was there, when they were like playing in places the size of your living room, mm-hmm. and that was exciting. It's like a guitar player watching them deconstruct what guitar was all about. Yeah, yeah. Does that begin um, to plant any kind of a seed in your head? You know, seeing yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it was cool to be really getting into East Coast punk and hardcore, but be in a place where I couldn't access it, and right. so I was getting exposed to everything that else that people who had already like kind of been going to hardcore shows since the early 80s had mm-hmm. moved on to so like um interestingly enough i got exposed to the new york like noise scene mm-hmm. in michigan so <laughs> early sonic youth when there's like a drone kind of noise thing going on and uh, a band called live skull that for some reason no one ever talks about although i think they were like immensely influential really dissonant kind of mechanical sounding band uh swans um you know that's those those people that i met from there you know turned me on to uh to mission of burma and and wire and you know less like a lot of Mm post-punk um so I guess this saves you from taking too myopic a view. Yeah, of, it saved me from becoming like a skinhead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was good. But I was dying to see Gorilla Biscuits, and I was in Michigan like eight months out of the year. Yeah. But then what had been happening is I'd, I'd go see whatever, like anything weird and loud. I would go. There's a club called The Blind Pig, which is probably about the size of the first floor of your house. Uh-huh. And everybody played there. Everybody that came through. So I got to see... All the sub pop bands before that shit got famous. Yeah. So, Nirvana on their first tour, Soundgarden on their first tour, Tad on their first tour, um, all the Homestead bands. I got to see Naked Raygun. I got yeah, to see. Great. I got really into Naked Raygun because yeah. the Midwest of people were like, "This is our band," you know. Right. And they're and, fucking fantastic. Yeah, and Naked yeah. Raygun was next level because they could have just been, they could have just taken the easy route and been the American stiff little fingers with those big hooks, those mm-hmm. big whoa yeah, yeah, hooks. Yeah. But but two thirds of their songs would just be fucking weird, dissonant, <laughs> yeah. uh, like misanthropic f- <laughs> something. Yeah. And like so those records were genius. I was just like, wow, what are they doing? So um But then the first thing, Nasty Record came out, and that was kind of life-changing because it was really dynamic. Mm-hmm. It took like what Minor Threat was doing dynamically to the next level. Right. Um, 
but so I was going to all these shows, whatever was, like I said, whatever was weird and loud coming through Ann Arbor. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it was just hardcore bands. Like I saw Poison Idea. I saw, oh, I saw, I was in love with Dinosaur Jr. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even before, like the first record, it was first, it was, they it was were Di- Dinosaur, dinosaur right? and then yeah, they got yeah. sued by some hippie band. Yeah. And so I, I have a version of the first album that's just, di- that doesn't have the Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were fantastic. They were so awesome and aggressive and like uh, I saw them a lot in Ann Arbor but then I would go back uh, the school year was always done by like April 30th so I was back May 1st and going to City Gardens every fucking week Uh, and that was just like East Coast punk and hardcore yeah yeah maybe you should explain um, for those who haven't experienced City Gardens uh, a place of uh, maybe sometimes dubious merits. Like, what was the City Gardens experience like? Terrifying. For you? Yeah. Constantly okay. terrifying. I, mean, I would absolutely concur with that. <laughs> I but, would go... There were times early on when if I didn't get a parking spot close to the... You know, there was that big, long dirt lot next to it. Uh-huh. If I couldn't get a spot there, I would. I, I had a couple times turned around and gone home. Because I was afraid to park further into the city yeah, than that. I mean, the city, you could... You know, Trenton was a complete Trenton's pretty mess. economically devastated. Yeah. There it's were always of, creepy dudes hanging around. Trenton's one of those... I don't know what the rest of the country's like in this regard, but I think of these like kind of B cities, like like satellite cities right outside of big cities that were either very... Indu- like the, the economy was very industrial or were based on a port. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and New, uh, Trenton had a port, I think. Yeah. And had a lot of manufacturing. I mean, they have this... The bridge in Trenton... The bridge over the river has this big neon sign that says Trenton makes the The world world take. So it's a manufacturing city. And when all those jobs moved south or abroad, like in Philly, like in Camden, like in Newark, like in Patterson, the economy died. And then you just had like this, these devastated half abandoned cities and especially the smaller ones, they had no other economy. They had no like intellectual economy to fall back on, you know, no schools, no, uh, no business really. Yeah, just yeah. like um, there were towns where you could make a, a solid working class living, working in a factory or working at the port, and then suddenly that just didn't exist anymore. Yeah, and I grew this, up in Camden County, yeah, right. uh, with the specter of Camden right. kind of looming over. Mm-hmm. And I never, in no, in no point of my life, was that place actually active. Mm-hmm. You know, it had already been dead yeah. and right. just got increasingly. And that was dinner. the beginning of also the question: like, oh, uh, does capitalism work? Like, if if there's no regulation, I know like right wing people hate talking about re- re- regulation, but like if if large businesses can do whatever they want to maximize profit, like how does that work for regular people? Often it doesn't. Yeah, right? yeah. Like a lot of communities were built around one major employer, and when that employer decides to move their production to Mexico, yeah, what are like, what do you expect? How, to how do, do you you, you just like let the forces of history roll over people? Mm-hmm. You know, like that doesn't work out. So, anyway, Trenton's a scary place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was also, you know, there it's like, um, you had like suburban white kids traveling to uh, you know a largely African American city that was kind of devastated economically, and. Uh, and the city just seemed kind of grim and, and abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
like way scarier than the Lower East Side either, even, which is, you know, it's going to show us there too, and the Lower East Side in the 80s was scary, mm-hmm. um, to me at least. Um, well, there was a huge <clears throat> drug epidemic that yeah. had moved through there. Yes. Yeah. But Trenton had Nazi skinheads. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so many Nazi skinheads. I'm a Jewish kid from the suburbs. Yeah. And I understand the forces that conspire to like, turn people in that direction. You know, economic devastation. Stupidity. Stupidity. But also sort of like if you're left with no functioning economy in your community, and your community has been especially affected by economic devastation and the the level of education isn't particularly high and things like things that people cling to when times are bad like church and patriotism mm-hmm. you know further stupefy you right um your kind of options are in terms of trying to understand what's become of your community it's either a critique of post-industrial capitalism mm-hmm. or like blame it on someone else. Right, right. Yeah. So There's what do you think? People where do you think people are gonna go? Yeah. You know, like what's the easiest explanation? Yeah. So, I understand why why Atlantic City and Allentown and Trenton had a lot of Nazi yeah. skinheads, but didn't make it any less scary. Yeah. Like, you know, several times a night, somebody in a Hitler T-shirt would walk up to me and my friends to bum a cigarette. You know, like that's just. Can you imagine that now? <laughs> no, I can't. But but I mean, I, yeah, it was it was. Uh, I didn't go to the bathroom the for years. Then, yeah. there. I wouldn't go to the bathroom for years. Yeah, I'd go next to my car. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. Um, because there was always a couple of huge skinhead dudes that kind of posted up, leaning in the doorway of the bathroom, mm-hmm. like really big. Like in my mind, they're eight feet tall. They're probably like six four, two hundred fifty pounds. But it's like, formidable enough. Formidable, yeah. not you know, swastika tattoos, Hitler shirts. Yeah, I mean, even at, like, shows that had no skinhead, you know, like, you'd go to see, like, The Exploited, or SNFU, or Dag Nasty, or Agent Orange, they're always there. there. It was worse for, like, Agnostic Front. And also, I started growing my hair long when I was in college, so I had hair down past my shoulders. I remember going going to see Agnostic Front, and feeling like me me and Peter were the only, Peter was friend from my town that I went to shows with who ended up being the other guitar player in Lifetime later on. But, um, yeah, we, I felt like we were the only people with hair in the entire place. Mm-hmm. We stayed in the back. Was this the sub-pop uh, influence that was causing the hair to sprout from your head? I don't know. No, it was more like because I was like probably uh, self-conscious and awkward and wanted to like hide. <laughs> Myself right. didn't like my face. Are you pulling a cousin it and you know, pulling your hair in front of you. I had skater bangs too at one point before yeah. I grew my hair out. Yeah, was, right. yeah, but it was all about. It was much more about like, oh, I found a way to inter. I found like a, a place where like, punk style and my self consciousness inter like, can interface. <laughs> right. So. But you're vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when did that? When did you turn go vegan? I'd already lived uh, when I moved here. Moved here too. Yeah. To Philadelphia. Okay. So which you... Is two, which is 92, so when I was 24. Okay. Uh, and what was the reason for making that decision? I had been vegetarian, and I just thought... I, the more I read, the more vegetarian seemed like a half-assed solution to the mm-hmm. problem that I was concerned with. Um, I mean, if we're talking about punk, I don't want to go into too much detail on that. I don't want to, like... To the lecture on veganism. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, just the basic idea. I mean, yeah. that makes sense. That, it's the, that like the dairy and egg industries are inextricably linked to 
abuse of animals and exploitation of animals and I didn't think like uh, we needed to feed ourselves that way and I don't like the economy that emerged from that kind of dependency on animals and mm -hmm. and were you concurrently straight edge? never straight edge okay so what did you you drink or yeah always drink did you nothing take, else yeah. so you, have you ever taken any drugs of interest? yeah or yeah. uh and I'm curious, like, but, sometimes, sometimes people can have interesting experiences with, say, like a psychedelic drug that will mm -hmm. allow them to perceive life in a, a different way. And you, you don't have to discuss this if you don't want to, but did you have any kind of experience like that? I'm not interested in discussing that. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so let's talk with the, about the beginning of playing in bands that you know, became to be well-known. I mean, mm. I guess Lifetime was probably the first, or was there something that was prior to that? This is the first one that was well known. I joined a band when I got to Michigan called Cancer. Mm -hmm. There was like a, a crew of Filipino dudes that were all punks from the Detroit suburbs that had been playing shows uh, for a few years already. And I joined. They needed a bass player. Right. I was the first non-Filipino in their band. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And Cancer is a delightful name for a band. Yeah, delightful. What sort of music were the was Cancer? It was playing? punk. Okay. Um, but they were moving more in, they were moving in a more melodic direction. I was moving in a more brutal direction. Mm -hmm. So we were like crossing at the wrong time, kind of. So we played together for like a year plus, and then it kind of fell you apart. You saved the brutality for a lifetime? Well, <laughs> uh, that was a few years later. Right. So how to, eventually you wind up. Yeah, I think I mostly moved back to the East Coast to, to, because I wanted to be in a hardcore band. And I loved Ann Arbor, but like nobody was wanted to play fast music. Like even, like I don't know if this is, is going to register for anybody or anybody remembers this, but like nothing personifies what was in vogue in Ann Arbor more than the Necros members of the Necros being in a band called Big Chief, which is basically like a grunge band. Mm -hmm. And that's what people wanted to do. Like, that's what people playing punk wanted to do. Right, so there's a certain progression and uh, yeah. make little arrows. Like nobody was it. interested in playing fast, mm -hmm. like fast beats. Yeah. I got jammed with a lot of people in the last few years I was there trying to find something that clicked. Um, but it's nothing. So back on the East Coast. Yeah, know, and then, and then the Necros became, had become Laughing Hyenas, which were a cool band. I saw them, like, so they were opened up for every big show and not-so-big show. Um, but that's the, you know, if you think about, like, map the tra trajectory from uh, Negative Approach and Necros to Laughing Hyenas and Big Chief, and that's what was happening there so there's no way I was going to find people yeah. to play this is where the punk documentary ends by the way yeah, yeah it was 1986 and it yeah. was all over and it was all over man yeah. it, was, it just like died and like <laughs> yeah no it kept going but it actually got way more exciting you know my eyes in the 90s mm -hmm. but I guess we're going there yeah, yeah. I have to keep my eye on the clock too what um, time uh... I have to be in Ardmore at 1 okay so should leave by 1230 okay right. okay um, so you feel free to like move me along if I'm like, no, no, I always like people to move at the pace okay. that they want to right. move at. I mean, because I want to get to Philly though. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, let's, let's, so let's go into the move back to Jersey. Yeah. So I could, I knew I'd be able to find people to play in the hardcore band. Yeah. 
And by then, um, it was also like I was also a little freaked out by how like aggressive and violent the New York hardcore scene had become, and I was had become enamored of very enamored of Dag Nasty and verbal assault. Mm-hmm. A life changing show was I, I basically Greg Dag Nasty was like our Grateful Dead, my little crew of friends from Westfield. You'd so a, anytime they were playing from the Anthrax down to DC, we would go. Mm-hmm. And, but I only really knew about the big venues, you know, because I didn't... It's like one friend in my town, you know, that was like... And then a couple of people that were, like, into weird music, but mostly just knew Dag Nasty and Minor Threat and didn't, like, weren't current. So I didn't know about people renting VFW halls and stuff like that. Like, And I didn't have access to that information very much. I gotta interrupt you for one second. Yeah. I gotta give them mail, man. Okay. Mail, so I gotta pause this. All right, this is uh, part two of my conversation with Dan Yeaman because I can't use my own tape recorder. We, <laughs> we had been, it's because uh, you just said something really offensive that we had to edit out. Yes, yeah, this is the first time ever. Um, so uh, there had been this one show, it was like, I believe it was an Agent Orange show, and the opener wasn't listed in the, in the City Gardens thing, and then there was this rumor that Dag Nasty was going to open. We'd already seen Dag Nasty like seven or eight times, but and so we went on the room based on the rumor, and Dag Nasty was opening. Um, and somebody was passing out these flyers. Um, there had been this like newer indie label called Giant that had signed a whole bunch of hardcore bands, and they, they basically did a new Dag Nasty record, a new government issue record, and a new verbal assault record all in the same time period. And um, they were doing a giant records like show at this place called the Lismar Lounge on Avenue A, and Lismar Lounge is was, is a basement where my head touched the ceiling, and it's narrow and tiny, and it was uh, dang nasty verbal assault and government issue. So it was and, a very intimate experience. Yeah, and it was like the next day. night, and we were like, "Fuck yeah, we're going!" And that was my first experience of people handing out flyers. For something I didn't know about at a show, yeah. that um, so we went, of course, and I watched Verbal Assault right on the cusp of Trial coming out, and that guy playing guitar made me want to play melodic hardcore, mm-hmm. like, period. Right. Yeah. And hence so, you did. Yeah. So, um, so I moved back to Phil, uh, to New Jersey in nineteen ninety. Um, with the intent of starting a band, but also going to graduate school within the next year or two. And we started Lifetime, and we started playing, and I got so kind of sucked into that that I didn't end up getting my grad school applications done the first year. So it ended up being another year. And I was living at my parents' house in Westfield and working in Elizabeth as a caseworker, social worker, and, um, and playing a lot. And we were practicing all the way out in Long Valley, which is like almost an hour northwest of where I lived. Where some of the band members located Which is where there? the drummer lived. Okay, Chris right. Daly lived there. And Ari lived down in Edison. I was in Westfield. So we were all like half an hour or more apart. Uh, Scott lived in Dunellen. And then um, I did that for a couple of years and then I moved to Philly to go to grad school and really kind of thought I would have to stop playing music. And then, because I was going to a clinical program, we were taking 16 credits and the whole time, and in internship two or three days a week, depending on the year. 
That's a lot of hours. I mean, mm. I mean, I know a lot of people work and go to school, but I in college I just went to school. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just took out odd jobs when I needed to afford like a plane ticket or something. But um, so I was like, I'll never be able to play music, and then somehow it just didn't stop, and and Lifetime became much more involved. I mean, the band um, seemed to pick up a tremendous amount of popularity uh, over the course of its yeah, early life. Certainly in this part of the country. Yeah. Um, you did tour though, right? Yeah. yeah. It was really frustrating at first because nobody like want like nobody was like people were not like particularly welcoming because what was popular was like tough guy stuff. Yeah. You know, like mm, trying to think, you know, who were the bands. I mean, like, I loved Sick of It All, but they were always playing with these, like, metal bands that were super scary to us. Um, and that were all people, like, I think composed of a lot of people that were, um, you know, at least reputed to have a pretty violent history at shows and outside right. of shows. Yeah. Um, and that stuff was scary to, to us. And Were you playing on bills with these bands? No, or So no. it was a completely, you know... Um, well, I mean, we did. We played whatever show we could got, but we weren't playing with those bands. I mean, we were playing small shows. For, and Ari had been a had been a straight edge kid and part of Jersey's. He played drums in for, in Jersey's first straight edge band, I believe, at least enough. What band they was that? They were called Enough. Okay. E N U F. Yeah. They just had a demo, and then he was in a band called Courage. That was kind of one of the first, like, more metally influenced bands in. Uh, in like Jersey hardcore and but you know by 1990 everybody was like chin 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 you know and uh and it was like the imagery was violent and tough and like and we were just like and Ari you know was into all that stuff and he'd been he'd seen Agnostic Front like a, a thousand times and um but he was like, I want to do something that's like so posy it makes Kevin Seconds look like a tough guy. Um, and so we're like going to put flowers on everything and like we're going to deliberately try to make, you know, create an imagery that would like the tough, that just like that would repulse the tough guys. Yeah, this is, this is a provocative move because yeah. it kind of invites a physical reaction to yeah. what you're doing. But Jersey was like our place, and we had a lot of friends there, so we did a lot of like politicking around safety at shows. And I, I, so, somebody sent me a picture recently. They were at a birthday party. Somebody in their forties, who's an old hardcore friend of mine, was at a birthday party in another person's house that was also in their forties. And framed on their bathroom wall was this flyer I had handwritten uh-huh. in like maybe 1992 about like taking our scene back from the thugs and like yeah. policing each other at shows and like I had my I put my phone number on it if you yeah. people wanted to talk or network and like it's really funny yeah that's um, great I had forgotten that I did that I was like I was like I would not stick my neck out I don't know well I guess yeah I the phone number seems very intimate I mean in, yeah. the, in a time prior to internet yeah. and I guess you know, you're also when you're booking this tour you're dealing with a pre-internet yeah, punk scene. all by phone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, who had the dialer? Mm, dialer, first tour, there was no such thing. Afterwards, a couple of us had dialers. Okay. Um, 
And then I moved to Philly to go to grad school. I went to Widener, which is down in Chester. So what year did, <clears throat> what year did you get here? 92. September, okay. ni- August 92. Right, okay. And... Um, so you kept... Lifetime going mm-hmm. yeah. for for some time. What, yeah. what time? What, when did Lifetime cease? At least originally, nineteen ninety seven. Okay, and then is there a time that you're not playing anything, or do, do you go on to started Kid Dynamite immediately? Immediately, okay. Yeah, like when I got home from the tour that ended Lifetime and started finding people to play in the band with, because I was pissed off. Right, pissed off about what? About people leaving the band. Okay. I had taken a year off grad school to, to tour full time, mm-hmm. and halfway through that year, there were like other people in the band decided they didn't want to tour anymore. Right. And then there's a point. And I, was ang- I was really angry. Yeah. Two of us had stepped out of academics to tour. Uh, I think Dave turned down something in the like artificial intelligence lab at MIT <laughs> wow. to, to go on tour. Jesus. Um, and then like, you know. At the the people that I thought didn't really have much to rush home to were like the ones who were, you know, belly you aching be about being away from home. Yeah. Uh, and I, at the time, I mean, we're it's all old news, and I don't, you know, I understand. Sure. I understand the forces that that drive people crazy when they're spending a lot of time away from home, and I don't resent anybody for that. Sure. Yeah. But at well, the part- time, I was furious mm-hmm. and disappointed, heartbroken, all those things. What part of Philadelphia did you come into? Where, where were you living? I lived, the first three years, I lived within a few blocks of University of the Arts. Okay. So 17th and Pines, 16th and Waverly. 17th and Lombard, 16th and Waverly. Did you have experience with Philadelphia prior to moving None. here? Okay. None. I'd never been here. So what were your... It was initial- always reputed to be too scary. <laughs> Everybody said, and you you went here, so you know yeah, yeah. you can call, call it fiction, but the... The reputation Philly had was, yo, you think City Gardens is scary? Like, check out Pizzazz. Oh, and I yeah, was like, yeah, yeah. So not interested in anything scarier. Mm-hmm. Or, and also I was told that Atlantic City skinheads were a big force. Yeah, oh, that's absolutely true. And yeah. so I didn't, you know, I was already like, I, I was comfortable at City mm-hmm. Gardens, like comfortably uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it was a known quantity. And I would drive to the Anthrax and stuff, but like I'd never come to Philly for a show. Yeah, I mean it's true, and it's it certainly it was a it was a main reason why Bull and Chris Wright and other people and I started Cabbage Collective was yeah. in reaction to which saved my life, by the way. Oh, thanks. Because at first it was just the only thing visible to me was what's that spot in Old City with the Pillars that was doing shows? No revival. Yeah, there yeah, was a revival, yeah. and occasionally some big show at the Troc, mm-hmm. and then still City Gardens for a little while. Um, but again, I had not been part of a community of kids up until then, so I didn't know about VFW shows and like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about kids; just I didn't know about DIY. Right. I knew that I knew what Discord was, but I didn't know what the aside from that the notion. I don't think it really hit home that Discord was just like two guys that wanted to celebrate their scene. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like something, and when you're a kid, like this vast network yeah. of something, you know, beyond your own. Um, yeah, so it wasn't until I, like, <clears throat> I didn't really understand the network until I started, we started doing Lifetime. And, like, I started, like, meeting people out of town and pen pals and calling people and visit. I, would, I had some friends in the Boston area that I would just, like, visit, go stay, go to shows for a couple of days, come home. Some friends in D.C. 
I moved here, and I, I used to go down to shows at St. Stephen's in D.C. a lot. This is pretty close. Mm-hmm. And we had made friends in D.C. and Richmond, so it was Because the positive there. force folks were doing things down, yeah, down there. Yeah, those people and <clears> other <throat> people. Um, and then I was going up to Hiltz's. Right. Yeah, the Hills Hotel. Yeah, God. That. <clears throat> and then, then the Cabbage Collective. Yay. First at, at the Calvary, right? Yeah, first, yeah, before, yeah. Before, Oh, yeah, so you went yeah. from the very beginning. Then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, so transformative experiences, UOA at the Calvary Church. Oh, yeah, amazing. Like, yeah. life-changing. And, I mean, we can do Philadelphia area, right? Like, anything's oh, yeah, yeah, relevant. Sure. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, let's talk life-changing and DIY... Um, Universal, Universal Order of Armageddon at the Calvary. John Henry West at Hilt's basement. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Life changing. Yeah. Forever, forever raise the bar that I'm still reaching for. Yeah, there is a level of physical intensity yeah. that those bands brought. And political. Yeah, poli- yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, but physical intensity, yeah, definitely. And like, and, and, and something ephemeral. Like, they didn't care about lasting. They just cared about like burning bright. Yeah. Um, and I'm still reaching for that bar, set by those two shows. Yeah. The I music can... I can get to, the physicality. I don't, I'm not. I'm maybe a little too old to go for that, but it might be why I play music with people ten, fifteen years younger than me a lot. Mm-hmm. Too. I don't know. So some some years into this, then you wind up having a physical issue. But mm, yeah. you, you died. I, I did not die. <laughs> that's dramatic. Um, so, oh, that's a big leap, though. The 90s. Oh, well, let's talk a little more about the 90s. The 90s, like, I don't want to talk about Lifetime and Kid Dynamite as much because I think they've been talked to death. Okay. Unless there's something, I mean. Well, I'm more interested, I mean, I'm never really that interested in the specifics of people's bands, but more mm-hmm. like the general thoughts. So, I mean, like, your thoughts on 90s would actually be very enlightening and I'd like to hear what you yeah, I mean that was where that was like the the height of like enthusiasm and activity and like the DIY in the world of DIY you know like we entered and I felt like we entered into this world that was entirely created and managed by the kids by punks like didn't like nothing cool happened in a club I feel like yeah. for the bulk of that day oh, I, I agree completely yeah um I mean, every once in a while, it's exciting to get asked to play a show at the Troc, but ultimately, the things I remember were not. The things I remember were a show your brother did in the Drexel basement student basement of the Drexel Student Center. What show uh, was that? It's Lifetime, Tintinabulous, maybe Adam and his package, Plow United, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Policy of Three. I, I, it's a fantastic yeah, show. Yeah. Uh, fake house shows. Oh my lord! <laughs> so bikini kill and team Dresh at the fake house. Avail at the fake house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Citizen Fish, I think at the fake. Didn't Citizen Fish and Spitboy did, wreck we, the Calvary for a little while, or the kids wreck the Calvary? Yeah, yeah. Citizen well, that was Fish, the last Spitboy show there. Show? Yeah. yeah, for uh, a while. That was, well, that was the for last you, show that, that we you did. We did yeah. at Calvary. Yeah, and um, then the church, and then or, came. But yeah, Fortieth in Baltimore, right. and then we went to Unitarian. Well, right. actually, we went to Stalag and Fake yeah, House yeah. and like other places, and wound up in Unitarian. 
Uh, did that come? Did the Unitarian come after Stalag and Fake House? Yeah. Some sometimes things were concurrent, depending on the show, because of the relationship mm-hmm. was tenuous, and, and I have kind of a bad memory on these things. But there was a definite end at Forty Eighth in Baltimore yeah. with the Citizen Fish Spitboy show. Yeah. Because the kids were terrible at that show. Yeah, because there were a lot of people who came out who didn't have an investment in the right. scene and didn't really know what we did. Uh, punks with an X, just fucking shit uh, up. Yeah, yeah, who were drinking outside yeah. and, and doing graffiti. And none of the people who came to the shows prior to that would do any of no. that kind of stuff. Because if it had just been Spitboy, yeah, I don't want to cast aspersions. No, no, no. It was Just the way that community was, self, was like uh, appreciated the value of the spaces. Yeah. yeah. I thought. Maybe I'm oh, no, 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 I, no, I think you're little... exactly correct. No, so, because like, they were very plugged into that. I mean, it's <laughs> and not... And Spitboy was like a DIY feminist punk band. Yeah. And the, the punks people... don't want to drink right. to the... Spitboy and right. the... scribble on the wall. There might have been some people drinking, but they would have hidden it. Yeah. Um, and if, if it hit But, you know, Susan Fish brought out, like, you know, people that were into the subhumans, which was, like, kind of predated, you know, a scene that created and cared for itself. I mean, maybe in England, that's what that came, what the subhumans were part of. But yeah. I think the people that were subhumans fans in the states were like a little more into like the anarchy and chaos. Yeah, chaos. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. chaos was not really a part yeah. of what we were doing. And also, well, it's not conducive. Like he can't. It's just, purely destructive and yeah. creates nothing in its wake. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that people like that coming into a show like that are happy to sow the seeds of chaos mm-hmm. because with no investment it just doesn't make a difference they had a good mm-hmm. time and if the place closes in their wake mm-hmm. what do they care yeah there's like the like the nihilist punks it's so much about the moment that like it can't be about the future of the community yeah exactly you know, we're like, all gonna fucking die anyway man yeah and like i had already you know i had like done that with the, in the 80s like I, I thought we were all gonna die you know yeah, and like yeah. And uh, yeah, by the nihilism is not attractive to me. No. It's anti-human. Oh, I agree completely, yeah. And I'm a humanist. Um, um, yeah, I mean, if we're looking so like, for... And romanticizing the humans, humanity's self-destructive nature is not interesting to me. It's like fighting, fighting it has been interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like fighting against our self-destructive nature is what punk is about for me yeah no I, I, if i had to re- be reductive mm-hmm. um but yeah the cabbage collective man that was life-changing cabbage collective and hilts hilts yeah like that was just the 90s for me and even when there were big shows there were those festivals that like kids would rent like a big place and do dance for three days four days work and then workshops and stuff and like even though some of the workshops got hippie-ish and heavy-handed yeah it was still like realizing the idea like trying to more fully realize the ideals of punk like yeah. it's gonna it's more than music it has to be to be significant mm-hmm. um well, i think you bring up a really good point <clears throat> which kind of dovetails into the reason why a project like this exists mm-hmm. is that in a lot of these documentaries that end in say you know 1983 45 they kind of miss this era where like mm-hmm. you said the kids finally took over mm-hmm. like where these yeah. ideals came to fruition punk actually it's, got better after you dropped out yeah maybe yeah. it wasn't as dangerous or new yeah but it got better oh, i i like, agree completely there's by the kids for the kids is way cooler mm-hmm. than like fender's ballroom and like gang members and you know like and people getting the shit kicked out of them and security and like yeah 
and the need for security yeah like there's no like nazi skinheads aren't coming to shows like that because there's nothing there for them uh and they're clearly not wanted so there's no need to have a thug at the show to to propel to propel the other yeah 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 and that's like i i wrote a set of lyrics that i have not yet used about like having to hire thugs to protect you from thugs and mm-hmm. it's called what we learned from altamont <laughs> right yeah apparently um, we didn't learn very much no. because it, it keeps playing itself right. out over and over again although i think here in this you know in yeah. the scene yeah it gets you know and, and it was like, countrywide yeah yeah that i think those ideas spread really well almost yeah. like the hundredth monkey or something where all of yeah. a sudden everybody realized that it can yeah. be done i feel like i feel like everybody was either doing a label doing a zine or at least really invested in traveling and communicating, doing shows, like, maybe not everybody. I mean, there were some consumers, I guess, but, like, sure. it felt like, or a distro, like, everybody wanted to participate. Mm-hmm. I think, that, and there was also a welcoming atmosphere yeah. for people to participate, yeah. because the spaces allowed folks to set, yeah. you know, if you had a thing, you were welcome to set to up set and sell up? the yeah, thing. Or, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think those ideas have kind of spread going forward yeah even, you know that it's kind of almost a given now yeah. i mean there are things i miss about that era but i feel like it's still a lot of that has persisted a lot of the best aspects of that have persisted mm-hmm. i mean the basement scene in philly just look at that I mean, yeah it's, it's, when in the last like 10 years there have always been like at least half a dozen and more houses at any given time that are doing shows regularly mm-hmm well, this is something as came, like an ongoing venue. Yeah, no. I, uh, it was something that came up in some of the interviews when I was talking to younger folks was that for people who came into the scene when R5 was fully operational mm-hmm. and was providing some level of punk shows mm-hmm. on a regular basis yeah. in, a, in a clean, safe environment for a reasonable yeah. price, would, would they lose, in effect, some of the ethos to do shows on their own when it was there being presented to them where it wasn't available in other parts mm-hmm. of the country? And fortunately, younger folks... Mm-hmm did still want yeah. to do that that well, as our five became big enough that like it wasn't satisfying all the needs yeah yeah like, yeah like, you know, get afraid or at least you know maybe mm-hmm. there was a concern that that a link would be broken if, mm-hmm. if a certain generation wasn't actively involved right. in doing shows because they were so well mm-hmm. presented right. to because them. it was too easy it was easy yeah, yeah. but clearly not but, the case yeah. because it's a shit i think it's good that that r5 got big because RFI still represents doing things the right way yeah, and absolutely. having a variety of scale. I mean, they still will do shows, you know, that are like, you know, 150 capacity, but have the access to doing shows that are 1,200 capacity and, mm-hmm. and are still interested in doing the range across genres of independent music. And I think that's great, but they're too big to satisfy the need and the needs there, which is great. Yeah. So now we have the basement scene. Yeah, and the basement scene is is, is vibrant, really, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And people move from house to house, yeah. and kind of the shows move from place to place. And there are always a couple of houses that become like the be all end all, like almost like the new Unitarian Church. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like it was the, the Terror Dome. I mean, it was Stalag. Well, the Stalag I guess preceded the church, but like the Terror Dome for a couple of years, Golden Tea yeah, House yeah. now. Like, not to take anything away from the other houses that are working their asses off to make stuff happen, but. Every once in a while, someone finds a space that's so conducive to like a really great sharing experience, you know, mm-hmm. the, where the sight lines are better, you know, like basements are cool, but unless you're the first 10 people, you can't yeah. see shit. Yeah. You get sucked into the energy of it. But like 
every once in a while someone finds a space where they're like, oh, we, we can do this on the first floor and we've got this living room that works mm-hmm. where everybody can kind of see and you can actually fit like 200 people in here and like still have no stage and like, and it's just kind of perfect. And yeah. I feel like like every couple of years there's another one of those too and it's great. Yeah. I guess when you're aware of these things and to some degree involved in them, it, it kind of allows you to avoid a sense of nostalgia, like, oh, things were really great back in the this yeah. year to this year, and then, you know, nothing matters after that. Yeah, I think because, nostalgia, that kind of nostalgia is really destructive. No, I, yeah, I agree. And I'm sure you know people who are sort of mired yeah. in that. I'm not interested in talking to them about music. It's just irritating. Because you know that there's always a period at the end of the sentence, like yeah. music will end at a certain point, so... Yeah. It's kind of a very fine. But if you pay attention, there's like cool stuff happening. I'm not, you know, like like I said before, before this was turned on, to some degree, all history is revisionist history. Mm-hmm. But because it's all about it's all about narratives and point of view and perspective and like, you know, different people were there that that felt different things, saw it, saw it from different angles. Mm-hmm saw it through the, the lens of different ideologies and they're all those stories are the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's their truth. Right. Or a truth. Yeah, it's a truth. A truth among yeah. many. So yeah. I, and I don't say the truth with capitals. Correct. Like, I mean, yeah. it's a, the truth. It's yeah. a, you can say a truth. Yeah, yeah I think a truth kind of works. I think there are always multiple truths, mm-hmm. right? It's like, which direction was the lens pointing? The, the lens is covering at best, like what? 20 degrees of a 360 right. degree. and there's all this shit going on over here. <coughs> exactly. You know, everything out of frame. Mm-hmm. Is, know, that is not, that story's not being told, yeah. except by somebody else that was somebody else. So, like, all those truths are important. But the revisionist history that tells the story of it just ending is, like, bullshit. It's, yeah. like, it's, it likes, it's self-serving, jaded, like, things were cool when I was young, now things aren't cool. And young people can't be doing something as cool as what we were doing, mm-hmm. which is horseshit. Because if you pay attention, it's happening. Yeah. You know, I think that there's, I think people tend to remember certain styles and I wish they were remembering other styles. You know what I mean? Like, like there's a, there's an experience I've been having a lot lately where I hear about a band or I talk to some young person that's in a band and I'm like, oh, what's it like? And they're like, 90s hardcore. And I'm thinking like torches to Rome. I just think Mike Kirsch or Sarah yeah, yeah. Kirsch, you know, and, and like, and like, uh, Nation of Ulysses and Fugazi and Universal Order, Universal Order of Armageddon and Crudos and and they're thinking like chokehold uh-huh, and yeah. trial, yeah, which yeah. is fine. Yeah. But I wish like there was a strong memory for the other stuff amongst people half my age. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for the same reason. But memory doesn't always help because everybody remembers the Gorilla Biscuits. But when people do an 80s hardcore band, they inevitably want to ape the Cro-Mags. Uh-huh. Right? And so, yeah. like, even even though even though everybody remembers GB. Yeah. I wish more people did bands that sounded like Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah, yeah. Although it seems like it would even be better to do bands that sound like them, you know, rather than <clears throat> looking back constantly to create, yeah. like, the 2013 version of this yeah. band that they never saw. This yeah, I mean, I, totally recreation, I'm not into, I guess, heavily influenced by yeah, yeah, is what, yeah, I mean, right. what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, so you now, you're in your 40s, you have uh-huh. a very professional job. I mean, uh-huh. you could say that you're... I'm a clinical psych- psychologist. Right, right. I'm not a child psychologist. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, I see adolescents and adults. Okay. Uh, in private practice. 
so this is and you have two children and, two and a children wife and a, and a home yeah. in, in uh-huh. Philadelphia. So clearly, you know, you have an extremely professional uh-huh. life, and yet you have this spark of vitality and interest uh-huh. in, in these things. So how is it? You know, you've retained this throughout the years. It seems like you've always had a very searching mind, mm-hmm. like a very active, enthusiastic mm-hmm. mind. Yeah, yeah. So, and you've managed to retain this curiosity, which I think is, is really great because, you know, I'm sure we both know people of, of a similar age. Yeah. We're almost the same age. Because music's exciting. Yeah. There's nothing more exciting. I mean, my children are exciting. Mm-hmm. And sex is exciting. And music's exciting. Right. Like people making things is thrilling and yeah. sound, loud sound. Mm-hmm. People struggling to invent something or even just to recreate something cool, right. you know, which is, is exciting to me. Mm-hmm. There's not, not, not much more exciting than that. So, and, but it's also still always, there's, it's always as much, not always, but punk has stayed at least DIY punk has stayed continuously like it's remained something that values ideas on an equal level as sound and that's exciting yeah I think that ideas are really something that can keep you drawn into this thing as well as the sound because they can be so vibrant and um, it's the sound of birth to me Mm -hmm. and I've witnessed birth twice Man. And you know it's it's a thrill, and that's what new music is like. It's the sound of birth. Right. And how can not that? How can that not? How can that, you get? How can you get tired of that? I have no idea. Like yeah. I don't get to go to shows very often because I'm tired. I work late. Uh, I have a family, and I have band practice, so I'm not taking more than one late night out a week. Yeah. Basically, because mm-hmm. I can't. My body can't really do it. I'm not as resilient as I was because um, kids wake up you have kids wake up even when they sleep through the night just to clarify they, maybe you get lucky and you have a kid that wakes up at 8 or 8.30 my kids both even once they've started sleeping through the night waking up they wake up at 5.30 and mm-hmm. that's really early it's yeah. horrible horrible that, that's when I get up in the morning yeah just like one of your kids because that's, I run but, oh, it's yeah. the worst thing ever um, I mean it's not conducive to going to shows even though even shows that end by 11 yeah, yeah. So, anyway, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but when I go, it's a thrill. You know? Like going to a show at the Golden Tea House is thrilling. Mm-hmm. Super. Uh, so, I guess in, in, in closing up things, do you feel that any of the, the values and ethos that you've derived directly from punk play any role in your parenting? Like, are there certain ideals uh, that derived from the ethos that maybe you instill into your kids or are they even you know are they vegan no I'm I'm not vegetarian or uh they're vegetarian although um you know we have some arguments about that my wife's not vegetarian anymore and she's worried about like you know them getting all their protein from soy so be really careful to make sure that doesn't happen do you not want your son to develop breasts just like not healthy I mean I worry about it for myself for whatever reason you know like um, so, you know, spend a lot of time making sure their, their diet is balanced, their protein is balanced between like soy, eggs, beans, um, try to, what I, what do I, tr- I try to instill, it's less about like this dogmatic, like lifestyle politics and more about, which by the way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 
being vegan. I'm a big fan of dogmatic lifestyle politics in some ways. Except like, you know, when someone's out when someone else Uh I can't really talk right now. When someone else is pushing theirs down your throat, then it's no fun, but um that should be a little funny into it. Uh no, more about curiosity and excitement and engagement. That's like what our parenting is about. Mm-hmm. And fairness. But you can't all you know nothing seems fair to a two or three year old, you know, like if they don't get to do what they want to do, it seems unfair. Yeah, then you're the, the um, figure of authority, but uh, I imagine yeah, you rule with a fairly benevolent and thoughtful yeah, I mean, hand. So. Oh, there's a lot of thought into how you manage parental authority and how you view it. So we put a lot of thought into the distinction between authoritative and authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Very right. different things. Right. I think kids need an authoritative voice. You know, like there's certain things that just are not okay. They're not safe. My job's to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. But within the parameters of that job, we have a lot of freedom. And maybe we can negotiate. Maybe this thing isn't safe if you do it by yourself. But maybe if I hold you, it's safe enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I want them to understand why things aren't, things that aren't okay. I want them to understand why they're not okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's bad to default to because I said so when you have to, because sometimes you're in a rush, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you can't, you can't just have dangerous. a discourse about. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes you sometimes you don't have time for a discourse, or it's like bedtime or time to go to school. But like, in general, when there aren't the constraints of like time or immediate danger, I want to like I want them to know why something isn't okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to know why we don't eat animals, but mommy does. You know, yeah. like. Don't sidestep those things now because you can say, like, mommy doesn't believe the same thing exactly about animals that daddy does, but this is what we're going to do. Yeah. You know? Um, And when you're older, you can decide for yourself, but for now, this is how we're going to do it. And it seems like, you you know, you said you live in a house filled with books and records and things like that. So, yeah, so you have, you know, the ideas are there that your kids can... The ideas are there. Yeah. We go to the art... We're within walking distance of the art museum. Yeah remembers she loves my daughter loves the art museum my son is a little bit of a destructive force so it's hard to we haven't gone as much since he's one Mm -hmm. we would go like weekly up until he was born for her first two and a half years um so just curiosity and and engagement with the world you know and like digging up worms and exploring in the forest and collecting leaves and listening to music and making noise and seeing what sounds things make and just exuberance and curiosity. Yeah, yeah. I think that those are probably the best seeds, yeah. you know, the, that you can plant in anybody's yeah. head and, and see what kind of, you know, beautiful plant's going to grow yeah. out of their, their brain. It's And negotiation, too. Like, she's somehow children's music snuck into the house, even though I said it wasn't going to happen. Because <laughs> right. I've watched certain friends lobotomized by children's <laughs> music. But, you know, now the children's music in the house, you know, she wants to hear certain stuff. And I said, well, we're going to alternate. You know, we'll play a kid's record and then we'll play a daddy record or a daddy and mommy record. Yeah. And, like, Does know. she gravitate towards any of the music that you listen to? She sometimes says, like, I, I want to hear yelly music. Yelly music, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any particular um, bands go for well? She, she, we had one particular babysitter that taught her about Minor Threat and Black Flag specifically. Wow, you had a and cool so babysitter. And so she would just be like... So she'd just be like sitting around playing with blocks, and she'd be like, "Daddy, be like what, Simone?" She'd be like, "Minor threat." Yeah. Like, Fuck yeah, it's awesome. No, we've had pretty exclusively, not deliberately, but pretty exclusively punk 
babysitters. Yeah. Yeah. So you can explain like what guilty of being white means to your three-year-old. No, not messing with that quite yet. <laughs> Wait till five. I think. I think you know what I'm gonna. I'm gonna say this. This is like breaking with canon, but I think Makai should have apologized for that song. Not apologized for like who he was at the time, but like it's a little dopey in retrospect. And he, but he's so unapologetic. Maybe not apologized, but sort of like been like you know. There's obviously a more mature perspective on this experience. That yeah, this I've is come a teenager's. To. I mean, so I don't know exactly teenager, how old yeah, he was, but it, you know. But he's so unapologetic. He's so determined to not apologize for anything. Yeah. That he kind of. That's the one place he ends up look, making a monkey of himself. <laughs> it's like you know, like you know, like sticking to his guns on that song. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess we'll. Uh... It's kind of odd to end on that. As the, yeah, as maybe the not. Can we like can <laughs> yeah. we not end on that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, but I don't know. I can't say what it's been like in other communities, but Philly, I feel like, has been really strongly committed to keeping that like DIY torch passed along. Mm-hmm. And like, I think there are kids doing just as exciting stuff now as when we were kids. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. And it's nice, you know, when I've spoken to them or, you know, been at events like that, to see the, the vibrancy retained through the years. Oh, and I just remember my first South Jersey show was the Harlan, which was you, were you involved me, in that yeah, too? Yeah, you and yeah. Bull. Yeah, me and Bull and uh, Chris yeah. Fry. Yeah. And Chris Fry. Do you yeah. remember what show that was? We it was did like a... Lifetime and Policy of Three, I think. Okay. Oh, no, no, it was Matter of Fact. As a matter of Fact, yeah. yeah I have the Matter of Fact three. demo of The Hand. Yeah, the, Jesus yeah. Christ, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, people were kind of, uh, it, some of the shows slam dancing in the little narrow yeah. aisle between the rows of seats. Really cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool that you were there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, excellent. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I really appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, and, thanks for the opportunity to not wax nostalgic. Uh, yeah, yeah, we didn't really talk that much specifically about the bands that you were in. I don't even think we said the name of the of Painted Black, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, I so think it's that, been Lifetime Kid Dynamite, Painted Black, and then another band I'm working on now yeah. um, that's very much in the style of the two shows I referred to earlier that were life changing. Yeah, I'm doing a band now with Andy Nelson and Chris Wilson that is very, very much in the vein of so Dag Nasty Verbal Assault. No, no, no. Or, or Universal. Uh, UOA, UOA. John Henry John, West. Okay, yeah. Jesus, but that, 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 I'd love to see. We're just looking for a singer. Yeah. And, uh, and it'll be good. But that's the next wave. That, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, it is it's tremendously impressive that you've been in three such big bands, you know, over the years, over a span of time. Yeah. I think I, there, there are a few people who can say that they were in bands that were so distinct and yet so, you know, gained so much popularity and remained within the ethos, you know, within... Let's hope it's because I love punk and not because I'm a narcissist. Or at least some, like, sort of benevolent combination of the two. Well, you, I mean, you wind up creating something that means a lot to people, and I think that that's really what matters. You know, benevolent or narcissist, uh, I would say that ultimately what matters is what you yeah. produce, because people are going to know you more from your work than, than as motives. an individual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, what it really is is I can't stop making music. And, and I don't... I love a lot of different kinds of music, but I am not interested in playing anything that isn't like loud and boisterous. Yeah, and this is good yeah. for all of us. It's good for me. There's plenty of people making quiet music. Yeah. Not enough old people making loud music. I would agree. So. Yeah, I think like. I think it's a good thing. 
All right, super. Well, thank you very much. You're very thank welcome. You.